0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Fruby, and this week, we're in Washington.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 Feminist states, and when you hear the call, you know so well. Sisters, speak I know,
0: how well. Hi, Fifty Feminist States fam, Amelia here. Welcome back to season four of the podcast. I'm so glad you're tuning in. Thanks to those of you who listened and shared last week's episode from California. It was so exciting to start this brief season on the West Coast there. And today we are in Washington, where I spoke to Mayumi Tsutikawa about her work as a writer and curator. Before we get to the episode, just a friendly reminder to please go follow 50 Feminist States on Instagram. You can find us there at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y, Feminist States. Trying to get up to a thousand Instagram followers this season, we are almost there and could use your help. So if you're not already a follower, please go ahead and give us a follow at 50 Feminist States. And if you are following already, please consider sharing the account with a few of your friends. If we get to that thousand follower, Mark will host a little giveaway on Instagram and send some 50 Feminist States swag to one lucky follower at the end of the season. So we are going to go ahead and jump into this episode, but you can head over to Instagram while you're listening, assuming you're not listening while driving uh, or doing something else where you shouldn't be looking at your phone. As I already mentioned for this week's episode we are in Washington where I traveled to Seattle and interviewed Mayumi Sutakawa. Well, I should say we spoke on the phone before I traveled there because she was going to be in Hawaii during the dates that I was going to be in Seattle. I could not begrudge her that wonderful trip, of course. And I was so glad we got to connect digitally even if we couldn't do so in person. During our conversation today, you're going to hear her talk about her work as a writer and curator. She'll tell us about her family's history, her father is famed Japanese-American artist George Sutakawa, and her her brother, Gerald, has also done a lot of sculptural work around the city of Seattle. I've linked to a KUOW feature on her family, actually, uh, that you can listen to if you're more interested in their legacy and the Seattle art scene after this episode. You can find that in the show notes. But what we're going to talk about today is really her role in the city, the way that she's worked to promote the work of Asian American artists throughout her career, and then a new talk that she's giving around the state of Washington this year called Washington's Undiscovered Feminists, The features the stories of five remarkable, but perhaps less known or unsung women from the Pacific Northwest. So she'll tell us about that talk, and then at the very end of the episode, we'll also hear some of her reflections on the feminist movement from the past and the present, as well as the story of her maternal grandmother and her experience in Japanese internment camps during World War II, and how the impact that that legacy of anti-Japanese sentiment has had for her family and her community throughout the past decades. So there's so much good stuff in this episode, and I want to get right to it. This week, I'll be airing my full conversation with Miami, so you'll just hear it from start to finish with light editing. Uh, I'll go ahead and get into that now and let Mayumi introduce herself and take it away.
1: I'm Mayumi Tsutokawa, and I was born in Seattle, and I have been a journalist and an arts manager in the Seattle area for quite a long time. I think I started working for the Seattle Times in 1976, so um, I have been in Seattle for a long time although I have traveled, of course, I began my career as a, a grad student in journalism at the University of Washington and had um, quite a bit of activist activities as that was a very uh, important time in the anti-war movement uh, in the world. And so I was really active and drawing a comparison between um, the United States and other imperialist um, nations and their trying to take over countries of the world and a connection between that and um, uh, capitalism and its effect in Seattle on the working class and poor people in Seattle. So during that time, also, I became aware of the feminist movement and had um, been involved in um, a number of Seattle third world women activities.
2: I mean, that all sounds so rich. And it's exciting. I always like hearing from people who have done work like or lived in a space for a long time and done work there for a long time. How did you go from kind of the, that early studying journalism into the journalism and eventually into the arts? So how did, can you talk us a bit through how you kind of moved from grad school into journalism and into the arts work that you did later?
1: Yeah, we're, our family is well-known in Seattle. My father is a a noted artist, George Sudakawa, a sculptor and um he was really internationally known. Uh, he was quite prolific and very community-spirited. Uh, he was a, a faculty of the University of Washington for um, many, many years, decades. And uh, he was, was born in Seattle, so he had a long heritage in the Japanese-American community in Seattle. Um, and he married my mother, who was um, very, very uh, trained and involved in the Japanese traditional arts so um, he was a contemporary artist and she was a, a traditional artist also involved in the Japanese community and then uh, I myself and my three brothers all became involved in the arts. My eldest brother Jerry, or Gerard is his name, was the assistant to my father for you know probably 30 years and became a, a well uh, very noted metal sculptor, bronze uh, fountain sculptor here in the Seattle area with a lot of commissions and very, very large uh, jobs. And then my other two brothers, both are musicians. One is a most lifelong jazz musician, uh, Dean and uh, a recording artist. And uh, my youngest brother, Marcus Tsutokawa, is a, a concert symphony conductor and he uh, has worked with the finest youth and high school musicians in this region and is is really nationally known. So all four of us um, became involved in the arts and I first um, entered, uh, since I am not an artist myself, I will never say that I'm a creative painter or writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I became involved in the arts because I wanted, as part of my community work, community-based work in the Asian American community, I wanted to promote the Asian American artists, both both historical and contemporary. So I started to create um, research, writing, and um, uh, curatorial uh, art exhibits about both the historical Asian American artists and the contemporary artists who I really wanted to to promote. So after working on community arts, then I started uh, working for, to promote community arts with the King County Arts Commission. And eventually, after 10 years, I became the director of the King County Arts Commission. And then I was a freelancer and worked for the Wing Luke Asian Museum, an Asian American museum in Seattle. And then I went to the Washington State Arts Commission as the director of the grants program. So it all kind of followed along from my, ch- my childhood growing up in the arts and knowing arts and then su- through my community work, supporting artists and uh, wanting to record and promote the work of our historic Asian American artists. And then I became um, an administrator and um, became the head of the grants program.
2: Wow, I mean that's such a fascinating path to hear about, and kind of a, a family of people in the arts, and and your family's legacy in the arts, and then how you've moved into very actively supporting artists. For people listening who maybe you're not, you know, familiar with Seattle's art scene or some of the work that you've done to promote Asian American artists, I know that you've done, you've written books and you've done a lot of exhibitions. I'm just or curated a lot of exhibitions. Could you share maybe one or two that? stand out in your mind for for any reason?
1: So I have to give credit to another curator, Alan Lau, who's also a well-known poet and painter. The two of us uh, started out uh, in researching the early Asian-American artists, especially Chinese-American and Japanese-American. And we put together an exhibit for the Wing Luke Asian Museum called Turning Shadows Into Light. And we also were able to publish a book at that time, which was co-produced by the Wing Luke Asian Museum. And in my second book, They Painted From Their Hearts, was uh, a further exploration of the historic Asian American artists. And that book was uh, published by the Wing Luke Asian Museum in cooperation with the Smithsonian Institution Archives of American art, because they had been doing research and recording the lives of Asian American artists. so I have to say uh, a neat thing kind of happened. Uh, we began we in Seattle began to communicate with our counterparts in California, in the Los Angeles area and San Francisco area. So we were really the beginnings of of any um, research and I- exhibition work in the early Asian American artists. So there were those two um, exhibits were really um, notable. And um, also another exhibit that I'm, I organized at the Wichita Asian Museum called Beyond the Rock Garden brought out the really contemporary alternative ceramic artists. And so rather than showing the beautiful, functional, traditional uh, Asian Ceramics. We have a deep heritage, also of modern contemporary ceramic arts in the the Seattle area among the Asian Pacific American artists. So it really stood as a, a a very cool modern take on the craft traditions that are so rich in the Asian American community in Seattle.
2: Yeah, I think it's such an interesting, at least from what I've you know read about and of your your work, the way that you hold both history and uncovering it and having respect for it and bringing it to light alongside the way that contemporary artists work within, against, and beyond that to create new pieces. It sounds like this Beyond the Rock Garden exhibition really does a lot of interesting work in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how do you go from the work you did in arts to these lecture series you're giving now about five of the state's undiscovered feminists. How did that
1: happen? Well, after 14 years uh, as the manager of the Washington State Arts Commission, which um, it's a state agency, so it's located in a different city, um, one can become tired of driving (laughs) and commuting to a different city. Uh, Not every day, but uh, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So um, I was eligible to retire, and of course, I never sit still. In fact, the books that I mentioned to you were each, each created during, um, one of my maternity leaves. Oh. So I took advantage of the time. Uh, I have two children, so, um, two lengthy maternity leaves of about nine months to, to work on those exhibits and books. So, um, when I was leaving, getting ready to leave the State Arts Commission, I discovered that the, that Humanities Washington, which is our statewide humanities agency, supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, that they were looking for speakers as part of their uh, approximately 30-person speakers bureau to go around the state. And I always had been interested in um, local uh, history, Asian American history, and I proposed a topic uh, to, uh, speak about 100 years of Japanese American history and the context in which, um, the, uh, World War II incarceration, uh, was formed, formed, uh, the legacy of racism and anti-Japanese, uh, legal maneuvering prior to the war and how that became the, uh, incarceration period and laws in our country, and the fact that my my family, my father's father, uh, arrived in Seattle in 1904, and then my dad was born in 1910, so it's really an over 100-year history of Japanese-Americans in our state with an overlay of um, my family's history and how my father became an artist from the time that he, what happened to him when he was a child, what he studied. He was born in Seattle, but was raised in Japan and came back um, leaving behind his family and father uh, completely on his own to become an artist. And it's a really, it's a real story of a strong, strong will and, and creative, uh, energy. Uh, and then that created my family. So, um, I have to tell you that it was a very popular talk and I was on contract with the humanities commission for two years, um, and I think I spoke probably 55 times all over the state. Every every one of them was a, a, a small town or a Eastern Washington, some rural or remote part of the state, very few in Seattle, very few in the urban um, centers. Um, and I just met some wonderful, great people. They were interested and surprised and, you know, really fascinated by my family story and the also, the deep roots of racism in that led to the legislation that caused the uh, internment of 120,000 people on the West Coast. So, so that was um, really energizing, and I, I quite enjoyed it because I enjoy, you know, interpreting, discovering, and interpreting history. And then when it came time to enter into my second two-year contract, um, I s- spoke with um, this. And staff at the Humanities Commission, and um, they noted that the centennial of women's suffrage is coming up here in next March, March of 2020, and um, that they would be really interested to see more women's subjects and topics. And I looked at the list of um, existing speakers and topics, and I said, Damn it, we need more women's content here. It's just absolutely a shame that probably a fourth or, or maybe even less, uh, were talks, talks about women's history or the lives of women, outstanding women, fascinating women, um, what they did, what they accomplished. So, um, I set out to, um, give this talk, um, discovering Early, early women, uh, what I call feminists, but actually they didn't call themselves feminists. So I chose, of course, I started with about 20 or more names and um, covering every field and every ethnic group and so on, but that was obviously too many. Um, So what I decided was that all of my topics uh, would be women who were in the arts or journalism and they were artists or writers, and also that they should be very um, racially diverse, just like our society is. And they're all from Washington State. So as I started looking into the lives of many of the women, I noted where they were born. A number of them were from really rural parts of Washington State what their early lives were like and the really wonderful, fantastic groundbreaking um, work that they did and accomplished against all odds. Could you tell us maybe
2: either like a little bit about a few of them or more, more about one in particular, kind of your choice, but I'd love to hear who they are.
1: Yeah. So I I couldn't skip uh, including Imogene Cunningham, who is the most noted woman uh, photographer in the earliest times in Seattle, and she um, accomplished so much and had so many beautiful images images of of women. Uh, she was a chemist and uh, discovered new ways of printing the actual photographic printing, and went on to work with some of our most most famous uh, uh, photographers, especially landscape photographers like Edward Weston and Ansel Adams. So, and Imogene Cunningham's own. Uh, own uh, archive, is kept by her granddaughter in in Washington State in the San Juan Islands. So I thought that was really an important story. She just was a wonderful person. And then um, another woman in the arts is the Chinese American Priscilla Chong-Ju, who's um, developed uh, the whole family was involved in, in selling arts and crafts brought from China, but she herself developed, uh, modern contemporary, uh, fabric design techniques and she, uh, showed and sold her work and she, uh, was married to a well known Chinese American painter. So the two of them were very, very outstanding in the, the modern art scene of the Pacific Northwest. And then, um, Vi Hilbert was um, the most noted language preservationist of the Lushootseed uh, Native American indigenous language of the Pacific Northwest. So she was a researcher, writer, speaker. Um, She did more than anyone to um, preserve the written and spoken Lushootseed language, which is uh, hundreds and hundreds of years old, but had not been uh, written it was a spoken language until she uh, recorded and, and published books about it. And then um, Anna Louise Strong was the most noted radical pro-communist woman journalist in the whole United States, the whole history of the United States. And she uh, spent a good deal of time in Seattle and was part of the, uh, she was a national uh, reporter for national newspapers, but she was also a pro-labor journalist. Then she uh, went and traveled to Soviet Union and China during the forties and ended up living in China and becoming a very uh, well-published uh, and expert on the communist, uh, the development of communism and communist leaders in, in the world. And the, the last person that I speak about is, is a lot of fun because I play her music. It's uh, Ruby Bishop, who is uh, the one of the sparkling and uh, outstanding jazz pianists in the Seattle area. And she was born in a small town in, in uh, well, it's near Olympia it's in Rochester, Washington and amongst, but you know, not just an individual, but amongst a whole settlement, a whole group of prosperous African-American farmers and business people. And then she became um, one of the most outstanding Individual women. Well, it was her style was called stride, which is a type of ragtime. But she was friends with Cab Calloway and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, and was part of the robust African American jazz scene in Seattle. So um, I thought that each one of them really brought out something, uh, possibly a different unusual story that people audiences have not heard before. And then I asked the audience. Um, to, to discuss these lives and, and try and figure out were these women feminists or what was the effect of their lives and their accomplishments on um, our modern life today.
2: When you ask the audience that, what are some of the responses that, that you've gotten from them? Do they think that they're feminists? They, or what impact do they see from these women's work?
1: Well, it's, it's hard to, you know, putting the w- word feminist on this talk and asking that question is is kind of hard because I think that um, what we're talking about is individual women's lives and um, what they did within their own families and communities. And so, yes, these were outstanding people. And um, some of the people in the audience, um, notably older women, want to talk about the, the lives of their own mothers. And some of them were pioneers and farmers and the first CPA or the first Boeing um, engineer and, and so on. And there's a lot of pride. And there's a lot of nostalgia for um, the hard work of our early women uh, professionals and, and artists, uh, women who really accomplished a lot. So it it isn't in a way it's not a fair question to say do you think these women are, you know are, are, should be considered feminists it's kind of a catchphrase and a way to characterize the talk but but really what we're talking about is the really unusual and and fun and creative lives of five women and then people in the audience usually respond by talking about their own mothers and grandmothers and um, not specifically about the so-called feminist movement of then and now. Mm-hmm.
2: You, I kind of briefly mentioned some of the, this kind of stories or accomplishments of the mothers and grandmothers of the women in the audience, but have you heard any really kind of standout ones or ones that have struck you as you've um, talk to people and that they bring new folks to your attention
1: there I've given this talk so many times I mean already like 25 times this year um there were some unusual ones like the first stockbroker woman in Seattle or something like that but I just let me point out one thing that I I have been I want to say criticized and and it's it's fine I I take criticism, but one outstanding, uh, very cool Latina woman scholar who teaches in a college in another city, very directly challenged me, and she said, "You have no Latinas in this list." So I just had to say to her, "You know, I have done research, and I'm looking for women 100 years ago who were artists or writers in our state. Please tell me if you find some Latinas who fit that description." So I was actually happy that she brought that up it's good um to to say that because um you know most of my audiences are older white women it's just a fact that in fact most of my audiences ever even with the other topic the japanese american topic but more uh in in my feminist talk there are more even more women that are older white women uh so it's it's good that a uh, few black women and latinas have come mm-hmm. And if I get criticism from them, that is fine. I am happy to have somebody say something that really speaks to them and, you know, something stood out to them. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's happened.
2: Yeah, I think that makes sense. Could you share a little bit of your process about like how you did the research and how you found some of these stories as you were developing the talk?
1: Um, Let's see. Well, I've been in Washington, in the state for a long time, and I've done, um, a good bit of uh, historical research. Mostly, I my long list of, of names came out of talking with other people in the field, other women, other women writers and activists in the field who I felt had some idea of history. Mm-hmm. And also looking at remembering my uh, work with the Seattle Third World Women and my journalistic uh, topics through the years, but I um, had a list of about 20 and then I narrowed it down just because I thought that these, these five women, there were good, good stories. They were interesting stories and, and unusual and the breadth of types of work that they did to keep themselves going and to support their families, like mm-hmm. domestic work, cleaning, Running a food wagon, running a pool hall, craft store at the state fairgrounds for 30 years, taking photos of plants. So, so many different things. One of them led tours, uh, mountain climbing tours up Mount Rainier. Their lives were just so interesting and and fascinating and sparkling. And there was so much physical fortitude and strength um, in each one of them that... um, it was It was hard to choose, but I, I just had to do it and I you know looked for some geographic representation and uh, the different ethnicities and the different fields of, of study and scholarship. and uh, I just came up with these five.
2: Yeah, this is a, a big question, so I'm open to kind of an answer from any any direction, but I'm still I'm struck by you know your attention to and care for history. And I'm wondering, like why, why history is so, so important to you in this way, and why you want to share these histories with other people?
1: Well, certainly in the case of the Japanese-American topic, a lot of times the audiences would say, "Well, obviously the Japanese were put into camps because of Pearl Harbor because they bombed Hawaii, which is, American, an American base, and it was for their safety that they were put into camp and got free meals and free lodging for four, four years. And people would actually say that. Um, so it, it was really, really important for me to trace the legacy of racist legislation and anti-Japanese political lobbying, which spread to from, from actual uh, right-wing groups that are now... Uh, have been handed down to very prominent businessmen in our contemporary life here in the Puget Sound region, Seattle, uh, Tacoma region. Uh, so there's there's been this long, long history of anti-Japanese sentiment and also the mistaken idea that Japanese Americans who were born here in the United States and our citizens and Japanese in Japan, both were uh, culprits and likely uh, the, the reason for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that is so wrong and, and so counter to any constitutional structure that we have in the United States. And the fact that all Hundred twenty thousand Japanese and Japanese Americans, more than half of them were American citizens. They had no recourse whatsoever. It was based solely on their race, the color, and the color of their skin and their ancestry, rather than their citizenship. All of this is really, really important history to understand what happened in World War II and and what happened afterward. So, of course, I'm interested in history, and in the case of women's history um i'm afraid that today uh amongst women and a lot of younger women there's there's really a um a sense of the goals of feminism today are personal uh equality in equal pay and uh Personal rights and within the marriage and relationships and um, how we're, how we're viewed in today's society and there there is very little um, memory of what it took for women to even get the right to vote a hundred years ago well it was more than a hundred years ago in Washington state in particular we um, voted we meaning male the male legislature, first voted for women's suffrage in Washington state in in 1883. So, I mean, there's a long history of that, especially in the Western states, the Rocky Mountain and West Coast states, um, a long history of support for women's suffrage. But there are many, many steps along the way. The ability for women to sign contracts or to own land or to even attend school or to to marry a person that they wanted to marry or to get divorced from someone that they wanted to get divorced from. And I think that especially younger people today don't know what were the steps that our foremothers went through in order to achieve the kinds of freedoms that we have today. So it's been important for me to speak to the younger audiences. Like last week, I was at Central Washington University. And it was a really good, lively conversation, probably one of the best in which um, the younger students and the um, older women in the crowd who actually did live through the early years of feminist movement in the 70s, they really spoke to each other and really compared stories. And I thought that was one of the best experiences so far.
2: Yeah, I think that sounds really fascinating. Um, And I really appreciate kind of the ways you're exploring and explaining how much history I mean history obviously informs the present but this like process of forgetting by younger generations like does a disservice to the work that's being done now like does it disservice both to the legacy of foremothers who have gone before us and the attempts to make change in the present and I think there's something too in what you said about like the communal aspect of this work and the work that even the women that you talk about in your talk um, we're doing to care for their families and communities and not just an emphasis on like an individual self and rights for individuals. That is really fascinating. Is there anything else that you want to share about your, your work or this talk that you're giving or your experiences traveling around Washington to do it that we
1: haven't brought up so
2: far? Well,
1: I, I am trying to write, uh, the history and life of my grandmother, my mother's mother, because my dad, as a noted artist, his family has been well researched. But my mother's mother, is she had quite, quite a difficult life as a sort of pioneering entrepreneurial woman, restaurant owner in L.A. And um, she has a really interesting story. So I have to get on my own case to, to finish that so that I can share that story with with everyone else
2: yeah it sounds like um a really fascinating one. are there can you give us a, a preview of um a little bit more of it or are you keeping it under wraps until it's um, more completely researched or written?
1: Well, um my grandmother and my mother, you know the two of them uh, ha- really had interesting lives. My grandmother, as I said, was sort of this entrepreneurial woman, and she sent her children to Japan. So my mom grew up in Japan. She was born in LA, grew up in Japan, came back. So in the meantime, my grandmother in California owned several different businesses in LA and then in Sacramento. And even when she was incarcerated at the Tule Lake concentration camp, she was one of the managers of, they had these canteen co-op stores every, you know, maybe there were 20 of them because every block area had a thousand residents or something. Um, So my mom, my grandmother, her husband, my mom, her brother, and we're, we're all incarcerated there. And then the reason that my parents met was because my father, being a U.S. citizen, even though he grew up in Japan, so he was totally bilingual, he was in the U.S. Army, And he was part of the military intelligence school, which featured a whole bunch of um, Japanese-American scholarly people who were bilingual who taught Japanese language to the U.S. Army officers because they were preparing for the occupation of Japan. So he came to visit his own sister and her family, who were also incarcerated at the same camp in Tule Lake, Northern California. And then that was when he met my mom. So they met in camp while she was imprisoned and he was representing the U.S. Army. So, I mean, this gigantic irony could not have, you know, taken place if my grandmother hadn't <laughs> given birth. But it was between my grandmother and uh, my father's sister arranged the marriage of the two of them. And so uh, they were married after the war, after people left camp, and my mom moved to Seattle. And then that's where we were born and, and grew up. But that part of the story is just very dramatic. And she, my mother was a very, very elegant um, tradition, practitioner of the tra- Japanese traditional dance. So she was well known um, in the camp, and uh, which had 18,000 people in Tule Lake Camp. But my grandmother was the backbone of that family, and being that she was Uh, A strong businesswoman and very successful in that. Uh, She was the one that pushed that along. And in fact, after the war in Sacramento, the family owned a liquor store, a jewelry store and a restaurant, Japanese restaurant. So um, they really, I don't want to say they were successful. They really, really worked hard, as did all of the Japanese first generation immigrants. They really worked hard. And they were slapped in the face by the U.S. government by being thrown into jail with no constitutional rights, no rights whatsoever. So that makes it a dramatic story and the way that my parents met and um, so on. But it's all part of this manuscript that I'm working on.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm working on it.
2: Yeah. Well, I look forward to hearing or reading it when it's it's done, because it does sound like such a dramatic and important story for more of us to hear and remember. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing. I appreciate that, that kind of reflection as well.
0: Thanks so much to Mayumi for taking the time to speak with me and to you for listening to this 27th episode of the 50 Feminist States podcast. Once again, please go ahead and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. If we get to 1000 followers this season, we will host a little giveaway and send one lucky follower a whole bunch of 50 Feminist States swag. Next week, we'll have two very special episodes from Portland, Oregon, where I spoke to Rebecca Alexander and Shiloh George. There's so much greatness yet to come for season four. And then we will be off doing interviews for season five before you know it. So until then, I'll see you on the road. estados estados feministas.
1: 50 feminist 50
2: feminist
0: I want 50 feminist thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 feminist States. you can find show notes at 50 feministstatescom slash podcast and follow us on instagram at 50 feminist states special thanks to danielle signs and jessica Naria for our theme song until next time wild ones we'll see you on the road